Hello, friends. Welcome to the trailer for The Road Taken with CT and Bayo. I'm Bayo. And I'm CT. We've embarked on a massive world tour and are excited to experience all the thrills and boredom that entails. To help us process our own experiences along the way, we'll be having conversations with peers, idols, and maybe a rando or two. The Road Taken with CT and Bayo, part of the Ringer Podcast Network on all podcast platforms. David, the movie Joker finished number one at the box office this weekend, prompting every single media outlet in America to use the headline, Joker laughs all the way to the bank. (laughs) What I want to know is, had Joker not finished number one, what headline might we all have used to describe the result? (laughs) Um... I have no, uh, I have no idea how to answer this question. Um, Joker's parents killed right in front of him. <laughs> yeah, is his face red? Uh, wait, wait. <laughs> oh, that's um, good. Uh, Jim just messaged me. Joker foiled again. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, wham, pow. Joker foiled again. That's pretty good. Uh, yeah, you de- definitely most newspaper headlines would lean on the old Batman show. That's a great way to show your dismissiveness of the whole thing. How about a picture of Walking Phoenix and why is this man smiling? <laughs> no, seriously, why is this man smiling? <laughs> We are the Cesar Romero of Media Podcasts. This is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. Lots of things to get to today, including the unflappable Chuck Todd becoming flappable in the wake of the Trump-Ukraine scandal. We'll talk about Joe Biden's struggles to respond to and maybe even benefit from that scandal, plus what the media world should do after last week's Sports Illustrated bloodletting and the literary style of one Eric Trump. But David, I think we got to start off with the unfolding and potentially gigantic face-off between the NBA and China. This Friday, Daryl Morey, GM of the Houston Rockets, posted a picture or image that read, Fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong, which is how everything began. Uh, Protests have been going on in Hong Kong since June 9th. They are complex, but they revolve around the idea that the Chinese government is interfering with Hong Kong's semi-autonomous government. In fairly short order, Maury deleted the tweet and said, I did not intend my tweet to cause any offense to Rockets fans and friends of mine in China, dot, dot, dot. I've had a lot of opportunities since that tweet to hear and consider other perspectives. And I just want to stop there and note how amazed I am, and I assume you are too, about how these giant moments start. Yeah. A Friday night tweet from the general manager of the Rockets that, man, if I had been on Twitter and it happened by that, I'm not sure I would have noticed that at all. No. And certainly wouldn't have expected that that would cause an international incident. There's a lot of subjects that we touch on on this show where I feel a little bit guilty for having not ever touched on them before we do touch on them. <laughs> uh, this is one where that certainly fits that bill, but I think you're exactly right that like this is that it, it, we have to acknowledge 
the organic nature in which some of this stuff, especially, I mean, it's it's such a it's such a really particular thing to our point in history that we should be uh, on on some level sort of aware of, but also grateful for. You know that this stuff can erupt in the way it is. But this is a wild story. Um, that you're right. I mean, just a, a weekend tweet is calling into focus one of like the largest international issues and geopolitical issues of our time. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, and that apology turned out to be too late. In the ringer, John Gonzalez reported that the rocket's ownership, quote, has debated Maury's employment status and whether to replace him. We then got a cascade of apologies and pseudo apologies, you know, which are remarkable, David, because the NBA is the league that has staked out the we encourage our players to speak their minds corner. Uh, the league first said we recognize the views expressed by Daryl Morey have deeply offended many of our friends and fans in China, which is regrettable. They apparently posted a statement on Chinese social media that was even tougher, saying they were extremely disappointed in the inappropriate comment. That's according to the New York Times' translation. Mm -hmm. Tillman Fertitta, owner of the Houston Rockets, said, Listen, Daryl Morey does not speak for the Rockets. Our presence in Tokyo is all about the promotion of the NBA internationally, and we are not a political organization. And here, of all people, is James Harden, a.k.a. the Richard Holbrook of the NBA. <laughs> you know, we love China. We love, you know, playing there. Uh, I know for, for both of us individually, we go there, you know, once or twice a year. Uh, they show us the most important love. So, you know, we appreciate them as a fan base, and uh, we love everything, you know, they're about. And, and, uh, and, you know, we appreciate their support that they give us individually and as an organization. So, uh, you know, we love you. He was standing next to Russell Westbrook. When he said that, <laughs> completing the comedy of that particular exchange. We also got this. I'm sure you saw this, David, last night. Uh, a long and fairly weird piece of history splaining from Joseph Tsai, the new owner of the Brooklyn Nets. Oh, yeah. Called the protests a, quote, separatist movement and said it was a third rail issue for, quote, all citizens of China. The Washington Post Felicia Somnes, who is a former Beijing correspondent, tweets, so much of the language here, meaning in Tsai's statement, echoes the Chinese government's rhetoric from calling Hong Kong protests a separatist movement, they're not, to describing China's 1.4 billion fans as united in anger over a tweet, which would be difficult seeing as Twitter is blocked in China. <laughs> so that's where we are there. Uh, as to what the NBA is trying to do here, I thought Jason Gay said it really well in a, in a excuse me, sorry to insult Jason, a Wall Street Journal column. The New York, uh, the league, excuse me, is trying to thread a needle here, protecting its business interests while attempting to stay true to its self-touted principles. Dot, dot, dot. China does not appear impressed. And back home, the NBA is getting clobbered for what looks a lot like fealty. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think we should both say formally that we have great respect for the history and culture of China and and that the the great nation of China can do no wrong. Um, <laughs> but I think that that's, I mean, it's we, there's this weird, Bill actually mentioned this on his podcast, I, as I was listening to as I just walked in here, but this has echoes of this kind of similar, semi, similar fiasco that WWE, World Wrestling Entertainment, got themselves into earlier this year when they got into a financial agreement with Saudi Arabia. And, you know, it was a Hundred mil, hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, on the line here, and and after they had inked it, everybody, I mean, that was, I think, just before Jamal Khashoggi was murdered. But 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 you know, there are all of these. There's so much in the in the the climate as far as that stuff goes that it you know fans really started rejecting the proposal. 
and there was really nothing they could do. Sure. But I think what you have in both cases is this sort of like, it, it's not terribly difficult to wrap one's mind around, right? I mean, there's this just like, just competing interests of financial reality set aside the sort of moral expectations of the fan base or not even it's not even just the fan base anymore i mean i think uh, not, and this is not to make light of it or to lessen the significance of it but it's this is not just the fans of the nba who are outraged it's sort of the international audience of social media who's outraged not to mention seemingly every politician in america because they <laughs> all release statements and somehow we got ted cruz and better work on the same side of something about this <laughs> which is pretty incredible. I mean, I know I'm really jaded, but my first reaction was I can't believe that none of these politicians, even especially the Republicans, have corporations in their district who are telling them to shut up about this stuff. I mean, if the NBA, if the NBA can silence its most powerful figures, like is it is is it not? I mean, is it isn't it sort of surprising that like major national politicians aren't on this in the same position? Anyway, um, maybe that's beside the point. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just you know. It's the NBA is in a particularly difficult situation because even if they were tempted to be straight up and you know fully honest about the reality of the situation, and Adam Silver has done his best to to straddle the fence, to talk out of both sides of his mouth, do whatever he could, and and whatever whatever metaphor fits best in this situation. Um, but the reality is, you know, the NBA stands to lose a lot of, I mean, to to make a lot of money, to lose a lot of money if this thing goes south, um, and they are fully aware of the moral complexities or, or catastrophes, uh, you know, involved in, in doing business with China. But at some point, you either have to make the decision that, it, that the money's worth it or, um, you know, I mean, a, a, a case that WWE made that most people sort of didn't take too seriously, but, you know, is it is an argument you can make? Is that like, if we're going to, if we're going to affect any kind of change, we have to do it from sort of the inside. Um and not just by refusing to do business with them, because that won't make any difference. Who knows if they're, I mean, but whatever. At some point, you make the affirmative decision to do this, and then it's kind of hard to be honest about it, because part of the deal is that China doesn't want you to be like, yo, we know they're bad. You know? <laughs> I mean, that, that, that doesn't really help anybody, because for them, an international business deal is more than just a financial transaction. Yeah, and and I think, you know, you're, the fact that it's like the Daryl Morey, and I know the Rockets... You know, one thing we've learned is, you know, or been reminded of is how outsized the Rockets influence is in China because Yao Ming played for the Rockets. And even though he's long gone, the Rockets remain a favorite team in China because of that fact. The fact mm -hmm. that this is Daryl Morey <laughs> publishing a random tweet should suddenly even demand fealty. I mean, that's that's just ludicrous, right? Like. You know, no, with no offense to Daryl Morey, but like, who who cares? You know, like what Daryl Morey thinks, right? Mm -hmm. He made a tweet. He made a tweet about the Hong Kong protests. If he felt strongly about it, then maybe that's the right thing to do. Because look, it erupted into this sort of serious no, situation. No, I'm, I'm all for that. I'm just saying, like, from a geopolitical perspective, who cares about it? Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm happy for Daryl Morey to say whatever he wants and express himself wherever he wants. Don't please don't get me wrong on that. I'm just saying for the somehow to rise to international incident levels. Because, and I, and I guess we have to ask ourselves, is, is it rising to that because the NBA just backed down so quickly? And so we have so many apologies about what's going on there. Yes, I think that that's part of it. I mean, I, I think that there's someone in the office here asked what would happen if it, if they had just told, if he had just taken down the tweet when ordered to do so and no other, and you know, the, no one else in the NBA, the Houston Rockets had said anything about it, if we would have all been still, if we would have still be talking about it right now. I mean, I think that's a real question. 
that this did draw a lot of attention to it just by the leagues and Tillman Fertitta's action and, and, and re- reaction to it and, and everything else. So, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's it's impossible to say, but who knows what the pressures were, but certainly the reaction made a lot of difference. I got to say, I'm fairly stunned by the media reaction or media non-reaction to this because we live in a world where every single NBA trade, no matter how minor, sends reporters to battle stations. They've got reporting, they've got takes, they've got everything on it. Then this gigantic story comes to light and it is just dead silence from some of the NBA's biggest reporters. I mean, I, I'm, I, I mean, again, if people are working and sometimes this happens and people are working on popping a big piece. So if that's the case, I will come back on the next thing and say, Hey, it was great. I, I, I read it. It was great. I look forward to it. I'm sorry. I, I'm mistaken, but I read Adrian Wojnarowski's Twitter feed last night and this morning. There's nothing about this. There's not even acknowledgement of this. Zach Lowe on his Twitter feed has one retweet of Howard Beck tweeting an explainer about what the Hong Kong protests are. I yeah. mean, this is the this is your beat, right? This is a huge story. And I don't I don't understand why and again, it doesn't mean you have to clobber Adam Silver or, you know, clobber the owners for being, for sort of kowtowing to China. But I'm really interested in reporting on this. Like, what is the state of crisis like in the league headquarters right now? How is the NBA trying to finesse this? What is, what is their plan? Because I just feel like if this had been an NFL story and Roger Goodell or, you know, any, any NFL scandal that rose to even one tenth of the story, it would be absolutely all hands on deck from ESPN and and outside ESPN to figure out what's going on. Yeah. I mean this is just one of those just it's bizarre moments, maybe not bizarre, maybe it totally makes total sense, but but it's it's an interesting moment where everybody just seems really eager to stick to sports after <laughs> seemingly like years to of of trying to get away from that, right? I mean it um and and but like you said what you want, I mean the bare minimum is not is not something that 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 um, veers from from you know a sports beat. It's exactly there. This is a sports business story, right? I mean, this is a management story, and and it's and it. I mean, one would think that, you know, that if you have the if you have the connections to to you know scoop every draft pick by three minutes, you could probably you probably have a pretty good window into what's going on at NBA HQ right now. Yeah, and I'll just say this. Even when when Jimmy Pitaro came into ESPN, he formalized and probably to an extent downsized the definition of what is acceptable to talk about at ESPN in terms of quote unquote politics. Right. This fits mm-hmm. that definition. Yeah, this is a sports story. This began with a tweet from the GM of the Houston Rockets. It has repercussions for the NBA's business bottom line, if not the NBA totally in China. This is a sports story. It is it is absolutely coverable under ESPN's stated guidelines. Never yeah. mind how you feel about those guidelines. Never mind if you feel those are too small. This is absolutely a story. The end by their own definition. Yeah. So I don't I don't get it. I don't get it. Well, I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe where they're working on something, maybe something will pop up by the time that this comes out. But it does For seem sure. like there's a really significant silence. That the only person on the ESPN side that I am aware of that's broken it so far is Stephen A. Smith. Um, Ramona, he, was, Ramona was tweeting. Shelburne was tweeting about it last night. I saw her tweeting about it. Yeah, for sure. 
Stephen A. Um, there was some. I but, I would love to see a video of the Stephen A. thing before we weigh in on that. Maybe we'll do that on. I thir- I on agree, Friday. but I but I think this I think the Stephen A. thing is not. I I mean I, you're right. I don't I don't want to ascribe too much in the way of motive to him. But he did say that. I mean, straightforwardly, that the ESPN has a lot of you know uh, investment in in China in the Chinese market as well. So you know that's something that like, that's going to have to be. It's it you know they're in this they're in a very similar position to the one Adam Silver and the NBA are in. Um, it's very strange. It's I mean it's it's hard, you know, from a journalistic point of view. Uh, it's a little bit hard to square this circle, but everybody, you know, I mean, but it, but it's not hard to imagine what's going on behind the scenes. I guess I don't I don't want to get to conspiracy theory, but. It's, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, let's let's wait and see. And again, I to to, to everybody I named and people I don't named. If there's something big and coming, I'll totally I'll, I'll we'll put it on the press box feed. We'll talk it up on Friday because I understand but, sometimes things work like this. I'm just surprised. Again, these are these are and I say that with respect. The leading voices in the NBA, and I'm surprised not to hear from them immediately and in whatever form on the biggest story in the NBA. That's all I'm saying. Just to kind of put a bow on this, you're talking about, uh, at, you know, at the beginning, you talked about issues that that don't, you know, that kind of come out of nowhere and just totally dominate the news cycle uh, based on just a tweet or whatever. And, and and also talking about the the implications or sort of the pressures that big news outlets and other people are facing. Imagine if you had just gone, if you were at a pitch meeting and you were just like, hey, I have a great story. One of the NBA's biggest sources of income is a very problematic state <laughs> uh is it i mean it, when it, when it, uh, this is not stating my opinion but if you were like one of the nba's biggest sources of income i mean comes from a uh oppressor of human rights a play yeah, a totalitarian state with concentration camps um you know i mean if you would say if you would pitch this in the vagues of terms any editor would be like please like can we get that on the front page tomorrow um and notably it's a you know story that is very it, that is almost never told uh it's going to be interesting i've always thought that Adam Silver. Adam Silver's had a different relationship with the NBA press corps than just about any commissioner of any sports league ever. You know, probably maybe early Pete Rozelle is about as close as you can get. Oh, but, yeah. And part of that's because of his own stewardship, of the NBA, uh, not to take credit away from him. But I think part of it is also the nature of the NBA press corps. I always thought that was going to end or at least in a different phase when this labor agreement sort of got to came to a head and you had Adam Silver on one side and LeBron James and the players everybody likes on the other side and there was an adversarial relationship and journalists sort of had to had to think of him differently this might be that moment where you know we might we might have reached it now where it's just you know again and again it's it's not to say that Adam Silver hasn't had great moments that he has not you know, on balance, probably better than your average commissioner, certainly than the guys running hockey in the NFL. But it's also to say that this this guy is a businessman and he should be covered with skepticism and he should be covered, you know, as somebody who when when he does something, whatever it is, it you start with a thing of you start with the question of is this any good rather than, oh, here is another benign act from Adam Silver and. I just wonder if this is really going to change it because as you say, he is working like mad to say, Oh no, 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 we do. We do respect the right of free expression for our players and people like Daryl Morey, but we also want to conserve all this business in China. 
I'm in, I'm fascinated to to watch to see if that changes the way. Again, I think there's plenty of there's plenty of pressure and plenty of good columns today from non-basketball media. I'm interested in basketball media because again, if you look at the way the NFL press corps treats the NFL front office, it's just fundamentally different than the NBA media. So I'm interested to see how that goes. Like you said, I mean, Adam Silver's situation is, I'd say he's a widely liked guy, right? I mean, it's a, it's a, uh, and, and, and he's found himself in a, in a situation, not entirely of his own creation, but certainly one that they could, he could have gotten out in front of. But, and, and I think that that's the, I think that the, what we see here, I mean, on, on a very based moral level is like, uh, sometimes we get ourselves, <laughs> sometimes we find ourselves into really intractable moral quandaries, right? When, and, and, uh, and, I don't think that there's any just sort of like hand wavy forgiveness that the NBA gets. Uh, but also this is a, you know, a business tie they've had for a long time. I guess the situation in Hong Kong right now is, is, you know, very dire is much more serious than it was uh, in moments previous. And uh, I encourage everybody uh, to, to learn all they can about it. And, and, you know, more than a passing thank you to Zach Lowe for tweeting an, info- uh, the, the, an explainer about it, you know, because more people need to understand what's going on. That it took a tweet from Daryl Morey to, like, get us to have this conversation, I think, <laughs> is both significant in terms of, like, our own myopia, but also, in, I mean, but it's also, like I said, something in the end that, that I think we're all better for having the conversation. So, um it does feel like one of those things that, you know, I was talking to Dan Devine before he went on the NBA show today to discuss this very thing. And we're all just sort of like, he and I were both just like, well, we're going to, one of us is going to, you know, one of or both of us is going to go on a podcast today and probably say something we really regret, <laughs> you know, something that we wish we could take back in like two days, you know, not even like two months or two years or anything like that. It's a difficult situation. Um, and I think we should all be like aware of that as at the same time as we're like, you know, uh, endeavoring to understand all that we can about it and you know try to understand as best we can before we before we proclaim our uh, one way or the other who we think is right uh, a couple of funny tweets i saw about how the nba changes the subject from this very uh annoying subject for them one from angus livingston read adam silver is going to pay ben simmons 14 million dollars to hit a three in a preseason game that yeah, was funny <laughs> and then the other one from our very own jason concepcion Urgent memo from the league office. Someone please marry Kendall Jenner. So that's uh, <laughs> very good stuff. All right. Time for the overworked Twitter joke of the that's week where great. we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. David, there was a whiskey ad making the rounds on Twitter last week. I don't know if you glimpsed it. Uh, if you didn't take a listen to this, uh, it's a new way to get your drink on. The Glen Levitt has released an original whiskey drinking experience. A collection of edible cocktail capsules made from seaweed, meaning no need for a glass, ice, or a cocktail stirrer. An edible cocktail capsule. So it just looks like a little plastic bag <laughs> full of whiskey that you did you just eat rather than pour into a glass. It was an overworked Twitter joke Wait, to what? say. Yeah, I'm, I'm serious. Watch the ad. It's an overworked Twitter joke to say that this looks this is an alcoholic Tide Pod. Thanks to Pancon Palta for that one. <laughs> I'm not kidding. They're also multicolored. Isn't that just drugs? Like, I don't understand. If you like eat it, if you swallow a thing and you get messed up, like, I don't know. Like, okay, that's cool. Are, 
I gotta say, until I saw the ad, I did not know the whiskey was called the Glenlivet. So it's more oh the Ohio State University and less <laughs> Ukraine. Yeah, the Glenlivet. Okay. Who knew? Uh, R. Kelly, who is facing sex trafficking charges in a Brooklyn court. Well, last week the singer-songwriter was denied bail. He was denied bail. It was an overworked Twitter joke to say, "I believe he's a flight risk." I believe he's a flight risk. I, I believe. Oh, I get I, it. Yeah. Thanks to Tony Groves for that one. He's back in the overwork this week. And finally, Josh Rogan, a Washington Post columnist, did one of those ever-present Twitter surveys. He wrote, name your top three public figures you wish were still alive right now to comment on what's happening in our country. A lot of great overworks there, but my favorite was Abraham Lincoln, Malcolm X, and Ben Sass. Let's see uh, if you wished we're alive right now to comment on the uh, Trump administration stuff. If you clown Ben Sass, and we encourage that, <laughs> congrats, you made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. All right, David, time for the notebook dump. And let us begin with Chuck Todd, who is host of NBC's Meet the Press, gets dragged a lot for playing mm. the down the middle both sides guy. Well, by Sunday morning, apparently even Todd had had enough. He was interviewing Ron Johnson, the Republican senator from Wisconsin. Todd asked Johnson why he winced at the suggestion that military aid to Ukraine and a Joe and Hunter Biden investigation would be linked together, which is, of course, at the heart of the Trump impeachment inquiry. Instead of answering the question, Senator Johnson starts kissing Trump's butt. And here we go. Senator, let me ask you this. I, I, I've got a lot of things. One of the things that you came on here to do. I just the truth. You set this thing up. Totally biased. I could never really get into the full narrative. We don't have enough time to go through all the things I can talk about. In You're terms right, of because you came here president. and chose to bring up something about Lisa. Uh, no, you, you, uh, Lisa you started Page and the Peter piece Strzok. with something incredibly biased that uh, I, I would never be able to get the truth out. Senator, I, I, I don't know why you just came on here to personally attack the press and avoid be answering questions about what's happened here. Because of your setup Senator, piece. it's pretty clear. Um, we're only dealing with the facts that we have, not the facts no, that, that, that you wish them to be. With, and I can't get the answers. And I can't get the answers. The American people can't get the answers. So, something pretty fishy happened the, during the 2016 campaign and in the transition, yeah. in the early, the early part of the Trump presidency, and we still don't know. Robert Mueller was We do know the blinded. answers. Wow. Chuck Todd, like you've never heard him before, David. Wow. <sighs> I don't know what to do with this. It's really weird. I don't know either. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, do we, is this a, are we going to have a conversation about whether or not this was like a planned outburst or whether he's actually reached his breaking point or are we, is that, is just having that conversation just totally beyond the point? I mean, just totally unnecessary <laughs> right now. I think it's, I think it's mostly totally unnecessary because I don't think it actually affects anything. I do think it's sort of semi-significant that what we've seen since the Ukraine stuff broke especially since that thing that was sort of like a transcript came out was that a certain type of washington journalist who has kind of not been standing on the barricades yelling about trump with any regularity has kind of been like okay that's it i i you know i can't i can't take this anymore and it's the republican attempts at spin that have driven them to that point and purely as like a just media watcher journalistic matter, I think that's sort of fascinating. 
I think it's fascinating that we that this is what got us there, right? The Muslim ban probably didn't get us there. Uh, you know, the various Trump outrages over the last couple of years didn't get us there. But this was the thing where it's like he was accused of something. He did it by his own admission and by his own semi transcript that he released. And then these guys are coming on TV and trying to not even engage with it, but throw <laughs> up all this other stuff. And that's the moment that broke people like Chuck Todd. I understand it. You know, I mean, it's it's a it's a uh, yeah to to have gone. I mean, to to have to deal with the level of discourse that that is that you're left with. Um, yeah, and then to have people who won't even engage in the subject. It's like you're like you're like this is like the forty fifth person on your list of people to come like defend President Trump. Forty fifth might be generous, and they just come on there and just try to deflect. Uh, I mean, I might I might freak out on national television too. This is one of those things where Todd was getting the rare sort of victory lap on liberal Twitter. But if you kind of listen to the rest of the, the interview, it really just devolves into Johnson droning on about Hillary Clinton, bashing the media, holding up papers on camera and reading articles, which I think we should finally call like it's the full Giuliani. Right. You yeah. don't you don't really have a defense. So you just come on there just ready to throw as much shit as you can into the camera and hope that your performance, I think that your performance is just so unaccepting of even the basic premise of the host questions that somehow that seems like Trump is fighting or that Trump won't let, you know, himself be, be steamrolled by his opponents or something like that. I don't know. Maybe you can clarify that, but there, there is some, no, we are getting close to a singular report performance on the part of people that are defending Donald Trump. <laughs> I really thought you were going to say singularity there and I'm not I was just really excited oh. to see how that that was going to work out. The uh the, I I'm not sure that we're that far away from the singularity. We've known for a long time that Trump places his uh I mean the great value if not the highest value in people that are willing to go online and just like dogfight in his defense whether or not that defense is coherent in any sort of traditional way. Um and I think that I mean, listen, I don't I don't know that anybody I don't know that anybody inside the Trump administration will have, would have would have accepted the place they are now for I mean, you know, the, the potential for impeachment and everything else that they're going through for um, their pursuit of dirt in Ukraine. But setting aside the potential implications for the for his presidency, it's impossible to deny that this nonsense hasn't created a sea of probably insurmountable problems for Joe Biden, right? That this nonsense is actually going to stick in the in any. I mean, in, at least not if not like it's not going to follow him to his, you know, to his, you know, encyclopedia entry. But it's certainly going to like dog his campaign to the point that he may not be able to like come back up from it. And if you need any more evidence that just like this nonsense is more than nonsense in some kind of weird real way, then I mean that's it, right? Joe Biden. Yeah. And yeah, and that's exactly what I want to talk to you about next because there was a piece in the New York Times with three co-authors. We'll put it on the press box uh, Twitter feed about how poorly Biden has responded to this. Yeah, and part of it is I think what you're talking about, which is there's just so much noise on the other side that it, it overshadowed anything that he would do. But according to the Times piece, he has really 
struggled to do it. And part of it is, you know, his son is at the center of it and he's, you know, seemingly, you know, takes that very seriously and doesn't want to wade into something where he's going to constantly be talking about his son. But the other part is that Biden just doesn't seem to have anyone running his campaign other than Joe Biden. Uh, the Times reports he has no chief strategist. Quote, the campaign is mostly in his hands. And I think you and I have sort of seen this and tried to talk about it, at least periodically for the last couple of months, is that Joe Biden's campaign doesn't seem like it's guided anything other than by Joe Biden's gut. Then they get this incredibly tricky story for them to handle, which you know, either is the worst thing to happen in their campaign or the best because Donald Trump is clearly on some level really fears something about Joe Biden. And yet Mm -hmm. they've been totally unable to, you know, respond to that and and come up with a coherent message to deal with. What do you think? Yeah, I think you just said it. I mean, I think that, um, you know, at times you feel like there's the broad strokes of a winning strategy, um, but winning a presidential campaign in 2019 has got to be a lot more than platitudes. Now, well, we should say that, like, that description of the Biden campaign sounds an awful lot like the way we were talking about the Trump campaign four years ago. Sure. Um, so it's not like this is an, it's not, it's not like we have to struggle to find a comparison, a successful comparison. But that said, I mean, I, I'm not sure that that anybody would endorse that as like a as a you know construction for this sort of operation moving forward. Um, you know, it's fine to say like you know Don, President Trump, we're not I'm not going anywhere as like your catchphrase, but like you got to be able to like say some other stuff somewhere along the line too to explain why uh, you know you would suppose that someone was trying to back you into a corner. Um, it it does just seem a little bit helter skelter, and like I said, it's broad strokes. It's got a, um, it's disheartening, you know. But a lot of a lot of the stuff, I mean, if as a as a if you're a Biden supporter, it's disheartening. As an idealist, it's disheartening. But I mean, in general, you just gotta you you should hope we could expect more out of like presidential candidates and their preparation. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, it it seems like it's coming at a moment too, and the Times nods at this where Biden's poll numbers have not been great lately. They've softened a whole bunch. Biden's fundraising in the third quarter was $15 million, which is nearly $10 million less than both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. It's about $4 million less than Pete Buttigieg. Um, you know, he is trying to kind of figure out his candidacy and and figure out what he's going to do. It also is like it revolves around the sense that Biden didn't want to get into the muck with Trump. His whole MO in this campaign was I'm I'm going big. I'm not going to make the mistake that Hillary did and 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 get get drawn into this stuff. He's not going to trap me. And then you have this story that is directly about Joe Biden. It's about a lot of things and Biden has tried yeah. again to go to go higher to quote Michelle Obama and say no this is about a you know a possible impeachable offense that the president committed. But at some level this is about Biden and if he can't you know, work up a response to this, it's totally reasonable to ask it. What's going to happen when, if you were the candidate, if you were the nominee and Trump is throwing stuff at you every week. Yeah. There's an NBC news story this weekend too. that said Biden, the headline was Biden said he was prepared for Trump attacks, but now he's struggling to respond. 
I think it touches on the New York Times piece that you mentioned, but but yeah, I think that just sort of encapsulates encapsulates the whole thing, right? I mean, the least you can do is prove now that you can shut down nonsense really quickly. Um, maybe the whole, I mean, you know, maybe you, you could you could make the you could make the you could defend yourself by saying that the impeachment issue is actually what's giving life to this story and sort of dragging him into the muck along the way. But I'm not sure that that relieves you of your responsibility to actually like show that you can campaign, you know. And this is uh, certainly <laughs> he's not he doesn't have he doesn't have the airtime that maybe a, he would have if he's the 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 Democratic nominee. But again, this is like you had to be ready for this. You had to be more ready than he's proving to be right now. You know, it's it's a uh, like I said, it's just it's just disheartening. Speaking of shades of 2016, this this graph stuck out to me in the time story, and this should be an, a warning siren for anybody that thinks wants Joe Biden to be the nominee. Mr. Biden's campaign manager, Greg Schultz, acknowledged some of the problems in a briefing for Democratic donors, dot, dot, dot. Mr. Schultz assured the group that they had a path to the nomination that depended on winning South Carolina, the fourth primary state, and then scoring big victories in the Super Tuesday primaries in March. Remember 2016, where people like Marco Rubio said, what I'll do is Donald Trump's going to I'm going to lose a whole bunch of primaries and caucuses. Mm -hmm. But then about four or five in, I'm going to start winning all the primaries and caucuses that that's not how it works. (laughs) If somebody has won all the other ones, they usually keep winning or keep winning most of them. And this idea that we're going to have Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and then in South Carolina, he's, his candidacy is finally going to come to life and then he's going to sweep Super Tuesday. That's that's not going to work. That's just not going to do it. And that, to me, is a losing campaign trying to spin things the best they can. There's just no there is no reasonable chance that that's going to work. But, um, you know, I think if you know, if this this idea that Warren is if Warren wins Iowa, and New Hampshire, Warren is going to be very, very hard to stop. Sure. Anyway, if I saw that and I were a Biden supporter, I would just be terrified. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I, I think that I think there's a lot of reasons to be scared that maybe some of this is is kind of slipping its past. So you mentioned the the fundraising numbers uh, at the top of the segment. I don't think we're talking about Bernie Sanders this week, but he made a whole bunch of money and then uh, unfortunately had to have some heart surgery and you know get well soon, uh, Senator Sanders. But um. But also Pete Buttigieg, maybe with that big haul. Uh, I think there's a lot of like, I mean, there's a lot of very interesting stuff coming out of the fundraising numbers that that Joe Biden probably would be getting dogged for if it weren't for all this stuff. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think that I think that the idea that, I mean, listen, Biden's got good numbers. He's going to still make a lot of money. He's going to be around for a while if he chooses to be. But I think in any in, in practical terms, you know. When you're talking about losing, I mean, losing primaries and stuff. I mean, like professing inevitability has its consequences, right? I mean, if you if you if you cease to be if you cease to seem inevitable, then what's the platform? I got another uh, topic here for you, David, which is what happens after what just happened at Sports Illustrated. Last oh, Thursday yeah. was a horrible day in our little corner of digital media. Sports Illustrated laid off about forty percent of staffers. A company called Maven or the Maven or the Maven is replacing staffers with cheap contractors who will spit out content. We got a little taste of what that content looked like over the weekend, and it was as bad and boring as you'd expect. Uh, Got an interesting DM I want to share with you from a sports writer who writes for a Maven-like site. I'll keep his identity under wraps. 
But the sports writer says, I write for one of these sites that are fueled by VC money and rely on cheaply paid labor. Am I and others like me part of the problem? I know a few of the guys working for the Maven sites, and it's all rather terrible when we see these people were fired. I just like writing about sports, and and the little bit of money I get is fine compensation for me. I just wonder if I'm a paren, very small part of the problem. Yeah. What do you say to that? Because that that's a fascinating question to me, and what, I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. I mean, it's a, it is a fascinating question. I remember, you know, years ago... Um, when I started writing, uh, well, I mean, I wasn't writing for profit initially, but like I, when I when I started writing, you know, for I mean, in in a way that people read it, <laughs> um, people would often come to me, and I know the same same with you, but people would often, you know, come to me and ask how to kind of like how to get in, how to get how to start their career or whatever. And I remember at the time I used to say just like get to New York and figure out a way that you can like work for free, you know, get your bartending job or like get a bookstore job or do something so that you can. You can get your foot in the door and just be and be nice and be available. And there's a list of other things, but one of them was like, "Don't count on this being your primary source of income for a while." Um, and <laughs> it does make you wonder now, like thinking about that out loud. If that's like, if I'm part of the problem too, if like the willingness is is part of the is, you know is part of the issue. Um, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, I, it's it's hard to fault anybody who's like young and hungry and like and interested and in, and in kind of willing to do anything for a job for a career. That they, uh, that that they really want, but, um, you know, this is the sort of that's that uh, it, it's a it's a it's a really tough question because certainly that is a problem. I mean that that is that contributes to, um, that contributes to the to the problems that Sports Illustrated and many others are facing. Yeah, and you know, I I think if I'm if I'm if I'm apportioning what the problem is, I'm reserving the lion's share for the corporate overlords who are coming up with all this stuff. Uh, you know, that's, that is, that is, that is probably more than 90% of it. I'm reserving a tiny bit for people that are executing their orders. I mean, I, I guess one thing I didn't really get to say last week when we were talking about SI is SI is the new SI is being co-edited by Steve Cannell and Ryan Hunt. At least according to LinkedIn, Steve Cannell has been at SI since 1995. Ryan Hunt's mm-hmm. been there since 2008. And they were the ones who sent that really optimistic memo Wednesday before all the stuff went down that just seemed ridiculous in light of what actually happened on Thursday. They co-signed a memo uh, that Kelsey McKinney reported on Deadspin today, on Monday. And, and to me, I'm like, why are you doing this? You know? How are, how are you wrapped up in all this and how are you co-signing on all this stuff? So to any, and, and, and I can't, I just can't fault anybody, especially in this economy for trying to, or I can't fault many people, I guess I should say, I guess I could, I could come up with some, some examples, but for taking a low paying, half paying, non-paying job to try to get into sports writing. I mean, I, I don't, I just, I understand the moral, I understand there's a moral point there where you say don't work for free because you are allowing yourself to be exploited and you're allowing other writers to be exploited sort of by extension i I totally Mm -hmm. understand that and 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 that is good but there's also a whole class of people who are like i'm i'm a cpa i'm a lawyer i do another job and 
I'm being asked to write to blog about a team I like for one of these websites in my spare, in my few spare hours of the day. So essentially we're saying like that person should just say no to that. That person should demand a wage that they're not going to get. I mean, I, I guess you could say that, I guess you could say, no, you know, do your own blog, do your own other thing, but they're, they're going to these content mills because their stories are going to get a few more eyeballs there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm guess I'm kind of talking in circles here, but it's just, it's just no, very I mean, hard that's, for me that, to, to, to I think pin that's the ex- blame there when there's so many, so many other culprits to go around. Yes. I think that's, I think that's right. And I think talking in circles is sort of where we all land. I mean, that was, I think one of the working titles of this podcast. So, uh, you know, <laughs> we shouldn't be too surprised, but, um, no, but I mean, that's it. You get to these tough, you, I mean, listen, we all can talk in platitudes, but like you get, you get down to the nitty gritty and you end up talking in circles. That's just sort of, that's how a lot of this stuff goes. That doesn't mean you can't believe in the ideals that you profess. That doesn't mean you can't work towards those, but it also means that it's probably a waste of, it, in, at times it's a waste of energy to demonize the, you know, the kind of smallest bit, the smallest instances, the smallest examples of, of the problems that are out there. Yeah. There's a big dead spin piece on Friday too, by Laura Wagner, David Roth and Kelsey McKinney. And one of the Maven contributors in there was quoted saying, I would never want to step in the place of someone that was done wrong. Dot, dot, dot. I hope everyone is able to find work quickly and would trade spots with them immediately if I could, especially if it meant to give them back what they had, you know? So it it's not like, I think, you know, these writers as a class are coming in with the idea of displacing people. In fact, I assume a lot of them are really, really uncomfortable with that idea. The other yeah. question, David, I got from people this week, in fact, from one writer was a really basic one, which is for people in the industry is like, what do I do? You know, if this is what <laughs> sports media is, if this is what the landscape is going to be and there's no, you know, obvious reason to think it's going to get a whole bunch better, at least in the near term, what do I do? And I don't have an answer for that either. Guess what? But the only thing, the only thing I say to people is all the places I worked with one very narrow intern exception, all the places I worked did not exist when I was in high school. Yeah. <laughs> Slate didn't exist. Uh, the daily beast didn't exist. Play RIP didn't exist. Grantland didn't exist. RIP didn't exist. And the ringer certainly didn't exist. None of those places existed. And if I'd gone to someone for advice early in high school, they would have said, yeah, you need to get on with the newspaper. You need to cover high school sports. You need to do yeah. this, you need to do that. They would have plotted out a whole course for me that would have been completely different. Or go to J school, damn. Yeah, exactly. The only solace I, I would offer is that I don't think anybody knows anything. Now, it may be, it may in fact get a lot worse. It really might. It may get even worse than we think. Um sports writing and the media may change in just completely grotesque and in unrecognizable ways. But I don't know that anybody knows that at the moment. I don't think anybody has a handle on where this thing's going to go. So that that's my pep talk for the class of 2019. This is my word to all of the up and comers out there. When all of your favorite sports writers were, were where you are right now, and they were asking how to, you know, what they should do. They were asking career advice from people. It might not have felt as nihilistic as it does now, but I'm guessing Knowing, remembering them, recalling the mindset of, of, of what it's like to be in your, one's early 20s, it probably felt about as nihilistic. Um, I guarantee what nobody said to them was like, practice your radio voice because there's a thing called podcasts coming along. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, 
I I guarantee that like I know for a fact that we've been through so many ups and downs of the way that we write online in a very short in the very short time that we've been writing online. Um I think that you know there's a lot of people that are going through really hard times right now and I think that it, you know we owe it to them not to be too flip about you know or, or just sort of hand wavy about that whole situation. I've said that too many times today, but the, but the, but you know, there are a lot of ways. Um, there's a, there's a lot of different ways to succeed, and there's a lot of ways that that we can't even imagine right now. So I think you're right. I think I think that I think that there's, I think that commitment to you know what you love and what you want to do, as silly as it sounds, is is like really the only sure thing. I got an identifier of the week for you, David. Uh, you know, when you write an article and you mention a historical figure, you sort of pause mm-hmm. and ask yourself, should I do a quick half a sentence to yes. explain who this is? So if you're quoting Roland Bars, did I say his name right? Roland Bars? I think it's just uh, Bart, but go ahead. <laughs> Roland Bart on wrestling. Do you need to write French philosopher Roland Bart? Is that exactly? Is that, yeah. Right. So that's this was my favorite example ever. This is from a piece in The Hill. On Friday, so <laughs> adjust your expectations. Already good. Already, I'm already in. Yeah. There we go. From Eric Trump, it, it doesn't matter what Eric Trump wrote. It really doesn't. What's funny is that he wanted to reference Marcus Aurelius. Okay. Yes. Now he could have written Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius or Marcus Aurelius, comma who ruled Rome from dot dot dot. This is what Eric Trump wrote. To quote the great Marcus Aurelius from the Gladiator. <laughs> Your Wait. faults as a son are my failures from, as a father. From the movie The Gladiator? Yes. <laughs> wow. To quote the great Marcus Aurelius from The Gladiator. <laughs> oh, my God. Gladiator also doesn't have the in front of it. It's a Ukraine no. situation. <laughs> <laughs> like Glenn Livett. Um, it's... Um, I just thought that was incredible. Now, 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 I mean, there's, there's a way, right. As Marcus Aurelius says in the movie gladiator, right. Which is by the way, a bizarre pull, you know, I mean, is it how, when, I don't know, do you, is it the Trump family where gladiator gets quoted again and again? And it's not, are you not entertained? It's, it's that your faults (laughs) as a son or my failures as a father. Was he looking for quotes about fatherhood? Anyway, I digress. All right. Time for David Shoemaker guess as a strain pun headline. Last Friday's pun tweet was, if you like subpoena coladas. And today's headline, David, comes from listener Ben Alshuler. Hope I'm saying your name right, Ben. It's from the Boston Globe. Apparently, there are a ton of acorns in Boston this year. The Globe reports that Boston and New England are having a mast year, which means oak trees are churning out fruit at a higher than normal rate. Uh, people have asked the city of Boston for street sweepers to come and clean up the acorns. Uh, the Globe quotes one report, quote, constituent reports many acorns in the street, making it dangerous to walk down. OK, now pause right there on that final thought. Many acorns in the street, making it dangerous to walk down and tell me what is the Boston Globe's strained pun headline? Dangerous to walk down a street because there's too many acorns. Mm-hmm. Am I going with like oak something? Or is this a, is the pun uh acorn uh tripping 
road. You got to give me something here. What do you? What do? You, what? What might you do if you're walking down the acorn littered street? What might happen to the acorn? Slip, trip, and fall, or cr- a crunch? Uh, mm, cr- getting closer, uh, closer. Crush the acorns, break the acorn. Uh, uh, this is a delicious dish. Might reference a delicious <laughs> dish that you cook up at a New England Thanksgiving. Acorn. Acorn squ- soup. Acorn <laughs> squash. Squash. Acorn squashed. Uh, and by the way, the web headline was, and this is this is a great little moment in uh, how you write your headlines for print versus the web. The web headline was, yes, there are a lot of acorns on the ground this season. Here's why. Which is completely. <laughs> just leaving that away pun with the behind. Pun. Wow, they're A-B testing the hell out of that one. Um, <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by Chris Almeida. Production Magic by Jim Cunningham. We're back Friday. Bright and early with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. Brian, when I do good, I feel good. When I do bad, I feel bad. That's my religion. That's a quote from uh, Abraham Lincoln from the movie Lincoln. (laughs) To quote the great Abraham Lincoln and Lincoln. See you, David. See you later, man. It's the Lincoln. David? Uh, Why are you doing this? I have no uh, I have no idea how to answer this question. Um because mm-hmm. there's too many acorns? Yeah, and how are you wrapped up in all this and how are you co-signing all this stuff? I don't I don't want to get to conspiracy theory. But and here we go. Uh, I think there's a lot of reasons to be scared. Sure. Uh, I mean, I might I might freak out on national television. Sure. What do I do? You had to be ready for this. It may, in fact, get a lot worse. It really might. Yes. I don't have an answer for that either. Guess what? <laughs> I guess I'm. I guess I'm kind of talking in circles here. But what do I do? Get well soon. I don't think anybody knows anything. I mean, that was. I think one of the working titles of this podcast. So, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> we shouldn't be too surprised. But um... I just wonder if I'm a part of the problem. Yeah. What do you say to that? Because that that's a fascinating question to me, and what I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. I mean, it's a, it is a fascinating question. I remember... Who cares? Yeah, but I'm not sure that that relieves you of your responsibility to actually, like, show that you can stick to sports. Wow. 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 Wow.